following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. I know Christmas has passed, but it's still kind of Christmas Eve, Christmas uh, weekend. So we're still kind of in the spirit of Christmas, and we're going to have a a bit of a Christmas message uh, from Isaiah chapter 9. Familiar Christmas passage. And so um, uh, let's begin by reading this morning from uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, a familiar passage is often read at Christmas time, and it is uh, it is a uh, it is does relate to Christmas. And uh, the key words there being, "For unto us a child was born." Right, and at Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that child who was born. Um, but what really is is Isaiah chapter nine talking about? And really, what does it have to do with uh, Christmas and with us? I think oftentimes it's a passage that's quite misunderstood. Partly because the whole book of Isaiah is easily misunderstood. How many have read through the book of Isaiah and just totally get everything? Anybody? Like I read through the book of Isaiah. I even read through at one time the book along with a very thick commentary, and I still just was very confused, right? Um, so we want to look today at what this passage uh, means, what it means in its context, um, and, and in terms of Christmas, and some, some parts of Christmas that we, we sometimes fail to think about. Right? We think about Jesus being born, uh, but there's more to his birth, perhaps, than what we, what we realize. Um, and kind of the backdrop, some of the, in our own world, you know, we do live in a world in a time now of chaos, and, uh, you know, the whole COVID global pandemic thing has kind of turned the whole world upside down, right? And um, it, what's interesting is as we've watched this pandemic unfold over the last last. You know, nine months, eight months, whatever it's been, too long, ten, ten years, however long it's been. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the entertaining sidelines of all this is watching world leaders deal with this, right? Global and national leaders make plans about how they're going to deal with global pandemic. And they make plans and they make decisions. And we see really how little wisdom and, and uh, these guys have, right? Because they just don't know what's going to happen next. And so they do things to lock down, to not lock down, to lock down, to re-lock down, to unlock. <laughs> you know, open businesses, close businesses, close travel, open travel. Like, they're just confused. And I would not want to be in their shoes. Uh, I wouldn't want to have to figure out, you know, how this is going to play out. And so we see, we see that, you know, we, uh, our leaders really don't have adequate wisdom to make good choices and what's even more important is they, have, they don't really have power to control anything. 
And I love, you know, Thailand. They've done a good job so far pretty much with COVID. And for six months, those of us who have been here have, have had a pretty good life because there just hasn't been COVID, you know. And we, we, we wear the mask and we take precautions. But really, very little risk of getting COVID and we've been pretty safe. Except, you know, they closed the airports, they closed all the borders, but they were not able to keep those people from coming across illegally. And so, boom, now here we have it again. COVID's hitting here, and it's spreading. 30, I read this morning, I think 33 provinces now have new cases, and it's only a matter of time. I mean, you know, just brace yourself. It's only a matter of time, right? So pray for that vaccine. Um, and, and so it's just a good reminder why, why we don't have a lot of confidence in world leaders. And on top of the pandemic, it's not just uh, dealing with uh, a unique thing like COVID, but we see that, that uh, just in general, uh, leaders are, are under a lot of scrutiny and criticism. And, um, and off, honestly, for good cause. Right? We see that um, the leaders uh, are oftentimes uh, protest. You know, we have protests in Thailand, protests in countries, uh, political nightmares in many countries, as leaders just don't do a good job. Right? They, they're flawed. Um, uh, and, and so there's a lot of reasons to protest. In some countries, there's no protest, but only because their leaders are so oppressive, people wouldn't dare protest as they rule with an iron fist. Right? And it's not just in, in politics, not just national leaders, but companies, organizations uh, deal with leaders who are not qualified, who don't seem to do a good job, who don't really care for the people they're leading. And sadly, even in the church, we see that pastors oftentimes are not good leaders. And, uh, in fact, um, I just read uh, several, several cases recently of churches suing their pastors and pastors suing their churches. It's a mess, right? So, so we need, and, and so we think, you know, the solution, what we really need right now in the world is we need good leaders. If we could just get rid of all these bad pastors and bad organizational leaders and bad team leaders and bad presidents and bad prime ministers and get new leaders, the world would be a much better place. But the real question is, where would these guys come from? Like, who could we replace the bad leaders with that honestly would be any better? Well, of course, we all know that if I was president of the world, right, if it was me, of course it would be better. Like, I know I could do this better. And that's what we think, right? And maybe we could... Uh, to a point, but really, are there any human leaders out there who can do this uh, to the level that we want? Right? Is there anybody out there who really has the wisdom to discern into the future what's going to happen, to navigate uh, the path through global, pandemic, global pandemics and economic crisis and, and troubles and wars and conflicts? Is there anybody who has the power to actually solve the world's problems? Is there any leader who really cares that much for his people that they can rule with true benevolence? Uh, is there really anyone out there who could unite the world in peace? Well, of course, the answer is there, there is one, right? Jesus. Right? Jesus. And that's what Isaiah chapter 9 is all about, right? The world is in chaos. It's turned upside down. But unto us, a child is born who can lead the world, right? And, and, and his kingdom is coming. Um, and so Christmas is a time, yes, to look back to the child who was born, uh, the babe in a manger, but it's also a time to look forward when Jesus will return to rule the world. Uh, and, and, and we celebrate not only Jesus as Savior who gave himself up as a sacrifice for sin, but Jesus also came to be Savior of the world in a different sense. Not just from sin, but from ourselves. right? From war and conflict and turmoil and chaos. And he will do that um, first by going to the cross, but then by coming to actually rule as king. Is anybody looking forward to that day when Jesus comes to rule as king? Anybody? I hope so, right? If not, it means you, you're happy and content with the rulers we have, right? So don't complain. All right, well, let's look at this. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 and, uh, and see if we can understand really what's going on here and how it applies to our life and the world and our future. 
Um, uh, some background first. Uh, to really understand Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, you have to understand that this is a part of a much bigger group of, of sermons or oracles that Isaiah gave that goes from chapter 7 through chapter 11. And in those chapters, 7 through 11, Isaiah is predicting the fall of uh, Judah. Uh, and already it's beginning to happen in Israel. And, it, and we know that Israel and Judah were two divided kingdoms at one time, all Israel. But after Solomon, they were divided into the north and south. And the Israelites from the very beginning, uh, or from the time it was divided, had been very unfaithful to God. And very quickly, as, as Isaiah is writing this, uh, the, <laughs> things are starting to look really bad for Israel. And in a very short time, Israel is actually falls to Assyria. Um, but uh, the people in Judah thought, oh, but we're the godly ones. We have the temple. We have the priesthood. We love God. We're safe. But in these chapters, Judah, uh, Isaiah is warning the people of Judah that they are not safe. That, uh, that actually they're no different or not much different than Israel. And God is going to bring judgment upon them. And uh, I won't go through the whole uh, chapters previous to this, but just the summary is that uh, Ahaz was king. And Ahaz was a, was a great example of a terrible leader. Ahaz was not a good king. And his two main, or well, his one main fault was that he trusted uh, man rather than trusting God. And he had decided he was going to save Judah from harm by making an alliance with with Assyria. Now, this seemed like a good idea to him because one of his main uh, nemesis, one of his main enemies was, was Israel, and they were fighting a lot and had lots of conflict. And the Assyrians were going to wipe out Israel. So he thought, hey, I'll just join Team Assyria, and when they win, I win. right? But uh, Isaiah blasts Ahaz for making this ungodly alliance and trusting in kings and kingdoms and not trusting God. And so God would judge uh, Judah because of uh, Ahaz's bad leadership. And not only did he trust the Assyrians, but he brought in their gods and their worship and their pagan customs. And one of the things that was rampant with Ahaz and with the people of the land was seeking mediums and spiritists for wisdom and for help. So instead of looking to God to, to lead and guide them, they were looking to the dead. Uh, and they were trying to call out the spirits of the dead to, to, to instruct them. And so they were falling under God's judgment. Um, and, and, and it would be easy to say, you know, if they would have just got rid of Ahaz and got a more godly leader, it would have solved all their problems. But, but Isaiah brings out another point that's important. And he says, uh, basically, Ahaz is only a mirror, a reflection of who you are as a society. And, and here's a great lesson for us. We can blast our leaders. We can criticize our leaders for how terrible they are. But honestly, our leaders are just a mirror of ourselves, of our own godless culture and society. Right? So when our, 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 when our leaders are foolish, when they make bad decisions, when they uh, do ridiculous things, it's just a mirror of who we are. Right? It's a mirror of society as a whole. And it's a great picture of the state of our nation or our country. And uh, that was true for the Israelites. And, and uh, Isaiah said, look, you're all guilty of the same things that Ahaz is. You are all trusting man and not God. You were looking to Ahaz to solve your problem instead of looking to God who uh, is your only Savior. Right? So, uh, so, 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 so Isaiah is warning them of this coming judgment. Um, now, of course, not everybody reflects society as a whole. And Isaiah, along with his followers, his disciples, um, were taking a stand against all of this stuff. So Isaiah is out preaching against Ahaz, preaching against sin, preaching against the corruption in the country. And he has a band of followers, a, a, a little uh, band of disciples, uh, kind of junior prophets who he was teaching. And perhaps much of his sermons, much of his writing was directed to his disciples as much as to the greater culture. Uh, and certainly there are some references here where he calls his disciples to hold on to God and to faith and to trust him. Right? Uh, but the result of all this uh, is that God does bring judgment. Uh, so in, in Isaiah 20, 
uh, sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah 8, chapter 8, verse 20, right before chapter 9, uh, Isaiah calls to his disciples and to the people, to the teaching and to the testimony. Strange call. To the teaching and to the testimony. Uh, it's not even a complete sentence, but what Isaiah is saying here is, go back to the word. Right? You've gotten so sidetracked. You need to get back to the word. I, Ahaz, you need to get back and anchored in scripture and to the prophetic warnings of the prophets, uh, Isaiah included as well as others, to the teaching and to the testimony. Right? You're, you're, you're seeking wisdom in the wrong places. And he warns them, if they will not speak according to his word, and to this word, in other words, if, if, if the culture and if the king would not hold on to this, this word of witness, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. Right? They've lost the light of God in their life. And the result of all this is that God's going to bring judgment. So in, in verses 21 and 22, he continues on, they, that is the people, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward in defiance, and look upward in defiance against God. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and, glo- and the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And it's a picture of this judgment that's going to fall. And the thick darkness is a picture of, of them losing the presence of God with them. Right? Uh, they, they, they're sinning, they're refusing to follow God, and God's going to bring uh, uh, gloom and darkness and despair on the land. As his presence is removed, and as their enemies fall on them, uh, ironically, uh, the Assyrians who they made an alliance with eventually invade the land and bring much destruction of, of, upon the land of Judah. Uh, so they are without uh, the light of God's pre- presence, and it says that the land is plunged into darkness. Now, uh, living in the, in the era of electricity, probably we don't really appreciate what it means to be plunged into darkness, Right? Uh, maybe you've been on, ever been on one of these cave tours where you go down into this cave deep in the earth and, and the tour guide thinks it's funny to just turn all the lights off. And I mean, you get a sense of what real darkness is, is there. But there's not a lot of panic because then the tour guide turns the light back on, his flashlight or whatever, and it's all good, right? Uh, and, and we don't really appreciate uh, that, you know, we carry around with our phone a flashlight in our pocket and, and really, there will be never time, probably never a time in our lives, likely, that we're in complete, total darkness. But if you've ever been there, it is a bit of a terrifying moment. And I haven't experienced that often, but I, I remember one time I was out on a hunting trip, and my friend had dropped me off on top of this, um, this huge gorge, this huge canyon on, on the rim of it. And he said, I'm going to drop you off, and I'm going to drive all the way around many, many miles to the bottom, and uh, you hike down, and we're going to meet at this, this point, right, way down at the bottom of this huge canyon, and uh, look for deer, right? So that's yeah, a great plan. It's all downhill, so how hard can it be, right? Well, uh, it turned out to be a lot harder than I thought, and a lot farther than I thought, way, way farther than I thought. So, you know, the sun's going down, and then it, the sun goes down, and then the light fades, and it got dark. I mean... Pitch black dark. And this was before the days of cell phones, and so I did not have the magical cell phone flashlight in my pocket. And uh, I don't know why, but I also didn't have just a plain old flashlight. Like, it's kind of anybody with any wits about them would have taken a flashlight, but I did not have a flashlight. I did not have a match. I had a gun (laughs) and a knife, but no flashlight. And I mean, it got pitch black. And I'm in this heavily wooded, Super steep hillside and uh, uh, lots of down timber that I could not see a thing. And to make matters worse, I knew, uh, and I had hiked along this hillside, this, this canyon enough to know that there were places where I just dropped off to a sheer, sheer cliff. So I'm just imagining what's going to happen when I take that one step into thin air and I plunge, you know, 50 feet and break things. And it's like, like I was scared, right? I was scared. Now, I wasn't lost. Thankfully... I knew I just needed to go downhill, right? So I couldn't be lost because I could feel what was down. I just, if I knew if I just went downhill, 
I would get to the bottom and I would find the road and hopefully my friend would be there, right? So I wasn't worried about being lost. But back in the time of Israel, um, like if you got stuck out at night and, and it was cloudy and the stars were blocked and the moon was gone and you were in the rolling, vague terrain of the desert, uh, you were lost, right? You were lost, plunged in darkness. And that's the picture here of Judah. He says, they're going to be plunged into utter darkness, into lostness. Right? And if you've ever been like that, uh, if you can't find your way downhill to the road, you know that the only hope is what? Sunrise, right? You think, if I can just make it through, if no, if no lion attacks me in the middle of the night, what you hope for is the rising of the sun. And, and, and Isaiah says, look, the sun is going down on Judah. God is going to send judgment. You are going to be plunged into darkness where God's presence is withdrawn, and it's going to be uh, gloomy and despair. But then, let me reread what he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. He says, But there will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined or dawned. Right? And so uh, Isaiah 9.1, uh, he talks about the break of a, the dawn of a new day. The coming of light into that deep, terrible Darkness of lostness and sin. Uh, and it's amazing what a gracious gift this daybreak is, right? It is a gracious gift of God that uh, Israel plunged themselves into darkness because of their own rejection of God, because they refused to follow him or bow or worship him or acknowledge him. And because of that, God sent his judgment upon them. But praise God, his judgment, there, there is grace, right? He did not reject Israel forever. He did not turn his back on them forever in spite of their multiple sin and rejection. He promises in, in Isaiah 9 that uh, a new day will dawn and that uh, God will graciously bring back his presence to them and his salvation and the light of his, uh, his truth and his presence. Um, he talks about Zebulun and Naphtali, those were the two northernmost provinces of Israel. Because they were the most northern, they were also closest to Assyria and the first place that fell in the invasion. And, and Isaiah says, they, in the past, they were the first to fall. In fact, he calls it Galilee of the, of the nations, of the Gentiles. Right? Not because it was Gentile territory. It had been Israelite territory. But because they had been invaded so many times, the Gentiles had, had lived in this land. And we know that when, when Jesus came along, it was still called uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, primarily or predominantly uh, a Gentile place. Still, still Jews living there, but uh, many Gentiles. And he says that uh, this is the place where the light's going to dawn first. Right? And then, of course, we saw that with Jesus' ministry. Where did Jesus' ministry first break uh, the darkness? It was in Galilee, right? Um, to, to Israel, but also even to the Gentiles. And just what a great picture of God's amazing grace, that he never gives up on his promises or his plan in spite of the sinfulness of man. All right, he promises this day of hope and of light. Uh, and he describes a little bit next what's going to happen when, when, when this light dawns, when it comes. It says, um, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So when this, when, when this child comes, when this light dawns, it's going to be time, a time of incredible rejoicing and joy. Right? Uh, the darkness is going to be dispelled, and it is going to be a time of celebration and joy. And there's two reasons, well, two kinds of joy. He describes it in two different ways. He says it's like the joy of harvest. Uh, when they would gather in all of their crops in the fall and they would see the abundance of God's provision and there would be joy 
in, in, in that provision. Uh, he also likens it to the joy of victory at dividing the spoil. And when they would go to war, they would plunder nations, and they would. They, they, and the thing is, when you won, you got everything your enemy owns. So all their cattle and all their livestock and all their gold and all their stuff. And they would bring it back and they would divide it. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've rejoiced in the dividing of the spoil. <laughs> you know, I just can't even remember a time when I've gone to war and I've conquered a nation. And you know, Like, we don't really probably relate to this very well. And honestly, I don't know that we, re- we relate that well to the joy of the harvest. Now, I did garden, and I, I remember gardening in Colorado where it was really hard to grow things. And I would harvest my five ears of corn, you know, my one lonely tomato. Uh, it was exciting, but I wouldn't say I was like jumping up and down for joy, right? Um, maybe we don't relate to those terms. Uh, so, so maybe it's more like the joy of finding out some long-lost uncle has left you his entire estate worth millions of dollars. Would you be joyful about that? Uncle Charlie, I never knew he died, and he heard you were a missionary, and you just inherited $10 million. Would you be joyful? I wouldn't be sad, right? Maybe I would jump up and down for joy. I can think of a lot of good things to do with $10 million, right? Maybe that kind of joy. Um, I don't know what you can relate it to, but it was joyful, right? The coming of this kingdom is a time to celebrate and of joy. That's why... We sing a lot about joy at Christmas because the coming of this king is reason to rejoice. Uh, because he has conquered sin, but also because he is going to bring a new world order. Right? Um, uh, and not only that, but it's also a kingdom of peace. Uh, and that perhaps is partly why there's joy. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor is broken. Right, So the the harsh rulers and the, those who oppress, those who subject, right? their, their rule of oppression is broken. And on top of that, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. In other words, the enemies are vanquished. Right? There's no more enemies. There's no more um, forces that will bring harm upon the nation. Uh, can you imagine living in, in a world where there is this kind of joy and peace? Right? Certainly not the world we live in now, is it? Uh, but imagine what it would be like to live in a world where there was nothing but absolute peace, where every enemy is defeated, and not only invading armies, but global pandemics. <laughs> Praise God, wouldn't it be great if there was no threat of, of COVID, right? So sick of that word, right? So sick of living in this, and, and like, who knows how much longer this is going to go. Imagine in a world where there will never be a virus, never be sickness, where corrupt and oppressive leaders are gone, where life is only good and it never ends. Anybody hoping for that? Anybody? I'm up for that, right? Um, and, and the thing is, we need to understand, when, when we celebrate Jesus coming at Christmas, we celebrate, yes, his coming to die on the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, and to save us in that sense. But know also that this passage tells us that Jesus is coming to save the world, to restore it to its original created order of peace and joy and harmony, where everything is good, right? like he created it in the Garden of Eden. So when will all this happen? Clearly it hasn't happened yet, right? Uh, but it's a little confusing because the son was born, right? And that's what it says. When will it happen? It says, well, it happens when the child is born. Right? Verse 6, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Right? When this will happen is when the, the, the child is born. Well, those of us who live after the fact would, would, might argue with that, right? We might say, well, the child was born, and we still have corrupt rulers and leaders, right? What happened? Did Jesus, did it not work, right? What happened that uh, there's still uh, such oppression and division and strife and chaos in the world? 
Uh, well, of course, we know the, the short answer to that is that Jesus came once to, as the break of dawn, but he came bringing the light. He came, came bringing uh, God's presence back as, as, as the child who was Emmanuel, God with us. Right? But we know that uh, his kingdom is here, but not fully. And so one of the things that we look forward to at Christmas is not just that he came, but that he is coming again. Right? That there is more to his work that will be unfolded. And, and God promises uh, that, that Jesus will return and, and he will rule and his kingdom will be set up. And he describes some of what this kingdom is like. Um, uh, first, it happens when this child is born. Right? And it's very interesting that he uses that, that phrase. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Uh, he doesn't say... Uh, this will happen when a great and mighty king uh, comes charging into, into the world to, to break down every evil. It doesn't say that. He says a, a child, a baby, is born. Uh, why does he describe it in those terms? Well, certainly it goes back to Isaiah 7.14. And as I said, Isaiah 7-11, through 11, one big chunk that all is talking about the same theme and topic. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah promised and prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he's, he's referring back to that uh, original prophecy about the child who would be born. Um, but, but it's interesting, when you take the, this, this idea of a child being born, and you connect it with the names he has given... What we see here is an amazing picture of the incarnation of God, eternal God, becoming human. Right? In, in his being born a son, a child is given, we see his humanity. The most basic, simple terms, Jesus was born. Right? He became in every way, experienced everything as we do human life, human existence. Right? Uh, he was truly a human being, a person. But, but notice the names that are used to describe him. Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful really has the idea of something supernatural and miraculous. He's not an ordinary human counselor. He's a supernatural counselor. He is called Mighty God. Okay, well, there it is, right? Um, there's no guessing his divinity. He is, by his very name, Mighty God, equal to God himself. Uh, he is everlasting Father, not just a Father, but everlasting, eternal Father. Okay, these, are, these are titles or names that could only be used of God. So this babe, this child born to us, is God. Right? He's got the very nature and character of God, but he is fully human. So we see in, in Isaiah's prophecy a picture of Jesus as the incarnate, the fully God, fully man, uh, one who came. Uh, but we also get a picture in his names uh, of the nature of his rule. What kind of ruler is he? Well, he is everything that Ahaz wasn't. He's everything that the president or prime minister of any country you want to name isn't, right? He is perfect. Here's how he's described. He is wonderful counselor. Right? As I said, the word wonderful has the idea of something miraculous, supernatural. Counsel is... The ability to give wise and careful advice. So what Jesus' rule is characterized by is supernatural counsel, supernatural advice, supernatural direction. Would Jesus have a problem managing COVID? No, right? Would he be confused about to lock down or not lock down? No. Why? Because his counsel, his wisdom is perfect. Right? He sees the future. He sees everything. Right? So, so he would have been in Wuhan on day one. And he would have zapped that virus right there because he, he knows the future. And poof, that would have been the end of it. Right? Praise God. Where was he? Lord Jesus, come. Right? Zap those viruses. Right? And then he would know the cure. He would know how to handle it and how to deal with it because he has supernatural wisdom. So he will always lead in the way that is absolutely wisest and best. Always. 
Right? He will make plans for the future that are good and right and perfect. Secondly, he's called, he is called Mighty God. Uh, and it means that not only does he have wisdom to, to know what the right thing is to do, but as Mighty God, he has all power to do it. Right? He has all power to execute every plan. Uh, he will never say, well, I've got this really great idea, but I don't know how to make it happen. <laughs> I know what the cure would be, but uh, I, I can't make it happen. Right? No, he is Mighty God. He has absolute power to make sure everything he decrees is done. Right? There's no limits to what he can do. And thirdly, he is everlasting father. Uh, a father speaks of a kind of relationship between a parent and a child. And, and in the perfect parent-child relationship, it is one characterized by what? Love, care, concern, uh, Wanting the absolute good and best for the child. Right? If you're a child, you, you may not always appreciate that your parents want the very best for you. Right? Or you may not appreciate that. But as a parent, we know that that's our heart. Right? We know that we want the very absolute best for our children. And that's what moves our decisions. So what's amazing is you have this, this leader who is perfect in wisdom has the power to do everything, but imagine if it stopped there, right? Super smart, super powerful, but that was the end of it. What would you have? Well, you could have the world's cruelest dictator, right? You could have one who uses his wisdom and his power only for himself, and, and we see that kind of leadership all over, right? Leaders who are, are selfish, who do not care about their people, and they use their power to their own selfish ends. But that's not Jesus. He is everlasting Father. He's one who rules in a way that, that cares deeply for those he's leading, for those who he governs and rules over. Like a father, his children. Right? Um, so, so you see these three amazing things come together. Perfect supernatural wisdom, absolute power, and uh, unending benevolence, Towards his children that he's leading. But yet there's even one more title. He is the Prince of Peace. Right? Uh, he leads in such a way that he brings the whole world together, first to make peace between man and God. So through his death on the cross, through his blood, it says that we have been reconciled to God. So we are now at peace. If we are in Christ, we are now at peace with God in our relationship with him. Right? We are no longer enemies of God, but we are his children. Uh, but beyond that, and clearly what, what Isaiah is talking about here, is world peace. That this peace doesn't only relate between man and God, but between people, between person and person. Right? That, that Jesus will bring a time, uh, will bring a rule um, that is uh, filled with peace. With people actually getting along. Okay, now forget everything else. Like, man, I would love to live in a world where people just got along, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Where, where, where people just liked each other and cared for each other and lived in harmony with each other, right? What, a, what would it be like to live in a world like that, right? Where there were no protests or wars because people just loved each other. Jesus will bring... And we'll make that possible. Right? He will make that possible. And so that's, that's the, the nature of his rule. That's how he will reign. And finally, we get something of the extent of his reign. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The extent of his reign is unlimited. The whole world and eventually the universe. It says everything. There will be no limit to his, the increase of his government. His power and his influence and his rule and reign will extend over everything. Right? So there will be nothing that is not under his dominion and control and power. Right? And for how long? For a few years? Uh, for a decade? For a generation? No. Um, 
There will be no end. Forever and ever and ever. And when his kingdom comes, it will be a permanent, lasting, unchanging kingdom of joy and peace. Right? Um, without end. Well, bring it on. Okay, when will this happen? Well, you know, when he comes back. Right? Uh, he came, he, he, he brought in his birth and, and in the cross and in the resurrection, he brought light. He brought God's presence in a very real way that has begun his rule over the, over the world. Right? But it is not absolute yet. But the promise of Scripture is that he will return one day. And that is the hope of Christmas, that he was born king, and he will return as a king to rule uh, over the world and to, to make everything right. right? And, and that is the hope of our future. Um, so one last question as we close. Right? We could stop there, but let me ask one final question. And that is, really, um, you know, we, we think and we know Jesus is coming. We know he's going to fix the world. And there can be the sense that in the meantime, we live in this world where it's broken. And we just kind of have to put up with it. And that Jesus really has no authority here and now. Right? And we, we oftentimes live that way, right? We live as if, well... He's in heaven. He's on vacation. He's chilling. Someday he's going to come back and fix things. But in the meantime, uh, he's not really ruling now. Uh, but that's a wrong understanding of his kingdom. As we've been looking through the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen over and over that Jesus proclaims the kingdom is near. It is at hand. The kingdom is present to us now. But what does that really mean? Well, it means simply this. It means... It means answering this question in your own life. Who is your king? Who is your king right now? By that I mean who is ruling over your life? Who is in charge of your life right here, right now, today? Because Jesus came as king, and his kingdom has come, and he invites all who will to enter into his kingdom. And to enter into his kingdom simply means that you make him king over your life that he gets to be in charge of your life, to rule and govern over it. And, and right, the, the problem with Ahaz, the problem with Judah, is they rejected God as king, and they put their trust and their hope in, in, in man, right? And maybe in themselves. Who is your king? Right? Who rules, really, who rules and governs over your life? Jesus came as king, and he wants to bring his kingdom to your life here and now, and he does that by taking charge of your life. Right? But he doesn't take it by force. We have to willingly yield and submit to him and give him charge and rule over our life. So what does it mean to put Jesus in charge of your life? Well, let's go back to his four names, and it's clear and it's easy. First, it means to submit fully to his wise and wonderful counsel. Right? It, mean, it means believing that Jesus really does, he really is smarter than me. And you know, honestly, I'll confess in my own life, I'm amazed at how many times I don't really believe that. I mean, I say that, it's my theology. Oh yeah, he's like super smart. But when it comes down to it, I'm pretty convinced I know what I need for my life more than God does, more than Jesus does, right? And I don't seek his wise counsel. I tear off carelessly making my own plans and my own decisions and solving my own problems. And I never stop to say, Jesus, what is your wise advice and counsel for me? How would you lead me in this situation, in this problem, in this conflict, in this struggle? Right? Jesus, take charge of my life and you Give me your wise counsel. Your wise counsel. You lead me in the way that is best. Right? Like it says in Proverbs three, five, and six: Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Right? It's the first thing. Second thing: He is the mighty God. Uh, letting Him rule means resting in His great power to accomplish his every good purpose in our life. And here's the thing. If we're really doing that, uh, there can be no place for worry in our life. Like, like worry 
is telling ourselves we're not really wrestling in God's power to take care of everything. And it means that we've got to do something about it. At the very least, we have to at least worry about it. right? Because we can't rest in his power to take care of everything, every detail of our life. Uh, not only, and you know, we don't deal with invading armies, uh, but we do deal with the enemies of, of sin, our own flesh, the desires of our own heart that are misdirected, uh, Satan, who's out to destroy us and distract us and derail us, and ultimately death itself. Right? Do we trust in God's power to deliver, deliver us and help us overcome each of these enemies? Uh, he is the everlasting Father. Right? To, to, to let Jesus rule, to make him in charge of our life means to trust him and, and put our life in his hands as an everlasting Father who cares for us, deeply cares for us. Uh, in my work over the past many decades, working with orphaned children and abandoned children and, and, and children who have been abused and hurt a lot in, in their childhood, uh, I'm amazed at, at how difficult that is for a child to overcome. And you can put a child like that in a very loving family where they are loved constantly. But the problem is when, when a child at a very early age didn't experience love that way, uh, it's really hard for them to trust real love when they see it, when they encounter it. right? Because their nature, they've been conditioned to say, well, nobody could love me. And so no matter how loving the parent is, the child's constantly feeling and thinking, well, they don't really love me. There's some trick to this, right? Or they misread and then they, they, they twist things so that when, when the parent says things, they twist it not as love but as hate, right? It's hard to get through that. And yet it's a reminder for me how much is that describe my relationship with God? Like I can see him as a mighty God who's out there to zap me, who's just waiting for me to mess up, to smack me around, right? I can believe in a God like that. But can I really believe in a God who is a loving father who cares so deeply for me, right? And he's not just a loving father, but he's the everlasting father. His love and his care never changes, right? It never, it never gets tired. It never wears out. It is everlasting, eternal. Um, do we really believe in God's heart for us? Right? Uh, if he rules in us, we do. Right? That's part of what it means to let him rule. We believe in God's heart of love to care for us. And lastly, uh, he is the Prince of Peace. Uh, if God rules in our life, it means that we have a life of peace. First of all, in our relationship with God. Right? We have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. And it means that we know and we accept fully the, the fullness of forgiveness. All my sins have been washed away, and there is perfect grace and forgiveness so that I am at peace with God. Did you know that if Jesus showed up right now and he was standing right here, you would stand before him pure and blameless, Scripture says, without fault, without flaw, right, through his blood. Right? Do we live knowing we possess that kind of peace with God? But it means also peace in his kingdom with other people. Right? It means we have a life characterized by relationships of peace. Okay, like Some of us are pretty good with the whole, yeah, I got peace with God, but we do terrible having peace with other people. Right? And we find ourselves constantly in relationships that are strained and fractured and broken. Because we do not get along very well with people. Now, of course, we all know it's the other person's fault. Like, yeah, if they would just get their life together, I would be at peace with them. If they would just do what I say, right? It doesn't actually work that way, right? Now, of course, it takes two, and, and maybe sometimes it is their, their, their fault. But are we doing everything in our power to live at peace with each other, especially within the church, within the body of Christ? Right? This should be a place where there are relationships full of peace. Right? Where we really love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
where we reconcile, where we forgive, where, where we learn to forbear, it means to put up with each other. It's like, yeah, they're being a jerk, but, you know, tomorrow I'll be the jerk and, and I'll need grace. So, you know, it evens out. It works out. And I'm going to be gracious and forgiving in my relationships with people. And I'm going to have a life ruled with peace. Right? Those, are, those are how Christ wants to rule in our life. And, and here's the irony. I know people that are so excited for Jesus coming, uh, and they can't wait for Jesus to come and fix the world. But they're unwilling to let Jesus rule in their life, their life today. And the, and the thing is, if you don't really want Jesus rule in your life today, you won't want it then. Right? You won't want his rule then. Uh, it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of emptying ourselves to let God be in control. Because pride and self wants to rule. Right? And so the only way Jesus can rule is if we uh, put to death, Paul says, our, our flesh. If we dethrone ourselves and say, I am no longer going to rule over my life. I'm going to trust in Jesus to rule. And I'm going to give my life into his hands uh, so that he, he's in charge. Right? Um, it's a scary thing. But the promise is, if we do that, a life of joy. Right? A kingdom. He says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as with the joy of a football championship, as with the joy of inheriting $10 million and more. Right? That kind of joy. Jumping up and down, screaming kind of joy. Right? That's God's promise. If we will just let him rule. And if we don't have anything to rejoice about, if our life is, is not full of joy, it's a sign that Jesus is not ruling. Right? It's a sign that Jesus is not reigning over our life. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.